welcome to this edition of the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm Brian O'Connor, Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth. And joining me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jamie Shaw, VP Operations at Chem Impex, which is her family's laboratory chemicals business. Thank you so much for joining today, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Jamie, why don't you get us started? Tell us a little bit about Chem Impacts and what the business does. Yeah. So we supply laboratory products to pharmaceutical companies and universities. So I usually say we're like the hammer and nails for drug development. We supply amino acids, peptides, and reagents. Very cool. So who is who, who would be a customer then? Yeah. So the University of Chicago is actually one of our customers. So really all university labs are generally using our products for the most part. Um, People who are doing any sort of research into heart disease, cancer, any sort of drug development. We have a customer who's trying to find a cure for baldness. So all kinds of different things. And then on top of that, we have customers who are traditional pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Becton Dickinson, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So people who are developing vaccines, um, as well as people who are doing diagnostic kit development. So a really big variety of people. So we spend a lot of time on this podcast, Jamie, talking about different revenue models. Can you just maybe let's take just a minute as we're talking about this very interesting business and, and characterize it. I mean, is it the case that you serve your clients on a, a highly predictable and repeat basis? Or would you describe your revenue as being more one-time project-oriented or episodic in nature? It's a good question. And I think that's actually something that we struggle with as a business to, to, to identify sometimes because we do have a subset of customers, um, these pharmaceutical companies who are using our products in manufacturing. So there's a very clear idea of how much they're purchasing, at what cadence, how frequently. Um, and then we have customers on the university side who you know, don't necessarily know where their product is going to develop to and may not actually have a path to commercialization. So those people are, you know, the one-offs. And it makes it actually quite difficult from an inventory perspective because we don't know which products are necessarily going to be our top sellers until we start carrying them and until maybe three or five years down the road do we actually see see growth in those products. Mm, very interesting. Well, let's let's take a little bit of a step back. Um, I sort of jumped right into the business model and we can <laughs> talk more about that. But But let's talk for a second about, you know, this is a family business. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how your father might have founded the business and what the evolution of the company has been over the last several decades. Yeah, well, it's actually almost several, you know, over a hundred years ago where this re- the story really begins. My parents both come from chemical backgrounds, chemical manufacturing backgrounds. Um, my maternal grandfather has a hypophosphate, which is a chemical manufacturing business in, in Bombay. And my um, paternal grandfather had a laboratory chemicals company. And my parents, you know, their, their parents had uh, shops on um, something called Princess Street, which was the, traditionally the street in Bombay that was all about pharmaceuticals and like pharmaceutical vendors. And my parents had an arranged marriage, actually, because their families were all in the same space. So it was... Not to get too punny, but it was there was a lot of chemistry in their relationship, to say the very least. Um, <laughs> so, the, you know, chemicals have been part of the family family for a long time. 
And my father was was joining his family business to to try to grow and 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 develop that further but he didn't really see that there was enough room for him in his family business so he moved to america and you know the traditional immigrant story had you know two suitcases and 40 dollars in his pocket and he started working the night shift at different chemical companies one was um sigma aldrich and, and it was his job to to manufacture a product and do quality control for it and it was really difficult work because it was third shift and he didn't really get to see my mom that much and he was in a lab for most of the time and it wasn't inspiring to him he's always been a really entrepreneurial person he just loves to grow things and build things and he's just always been someone who's had really grandiose ideas and for him he wanted to do more so he he quit his job and he told my mom you know, I've decided that I'm going to start my own company. And it was that same day that my mom told my dad, well, we're expecting our first child. So I'm not sure if now is the right time, but at the same time, <laughs> we have nothing to lose. Uh, my parents were filing their income below the poverty line. They, they literally had nothing. And, and because of that, my dad always said it wasn't hard to, to take a risk because what was the worst thing that was going to happen? Like I was just going to lose the nothing that I had. And I actually thought that that was a really great way for him to, to think about risk. You know, he, he's never been someone to, to shy away from it. So he started the business in the basement of our house and he would call companies um, and ask them, you know, what are your reagent needs? And that's kind of a weird question to be asking people, but Pabst Blue Ribbon um, and Pabst Brewing Company was actually one of his first companies uh, that he sold to because they had a lab that was buying, I'm not sure which product, but um, he would then find out, you know, what products they were buying, figure out where he could get it, and then turn it around and sell it back to them. And um, from there, the business has grown mostly through word of mouth. And now we're um, a multi-million dollar organization um, operating all over the world and really part of the supply chain of really amazing institutions um, that we're, we're really happy to support. Such a cool entrepreneurial story, Jamie. Really just wonderful. Thank you for sharing it with us. Let's talk a little bit about your involvement in the business and your path yeah. uh, toward working uh, with your father and what I understand to be uh, a number of family members in the right. company. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, ETA is full of all sorts of different interesting paths and mm -hmm. yours is no exception. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about your involvement and how you've got uh, into the position that you're in today. Yeah. So um, I started my career at Goldman Sachs um, in New York and then also in Chicago in the investment banking division. And I never really imagined joining the family business. I've always loved finance and I've always thought that that was the path that I was going to take. But after a couple of years in banking, I realized that I, I didn't really love just the advising part. To me, it was exciting to see what happened once the merger happened or the acquisition happened. Like, how do you get the two companies to work together? Um, so then I decided that I wanted to work for one of the companies. So I, I went to San Francisco and I worked for Google and I was on the Maps team and it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, the, the culture and the environment was 
was so inspiring, but I just felt like it was such a big organization that I couldn't make any change. So I was like, well, that's not the right fit for me. So maybe what I should be doing is I should be doing a mix of the finance world and the startup world, and I should consider venture capital. Um, So when I was at Booth, I, I interned at Hyde Park Venture Partners and Hyde Park Angels and had this amazing, amazing experience with awesome people like Ira Weiss and Guy Turner and Karen O'Connor, who are all just fantastic people. And I loved the advising part, again, of of working with these small businesses. But I felt like I wanted to be the person making the change. And I wanted to get my hands dirty and figure out, well, how do we actually get another customer? And how do we actually make our service better? And I was telling my dad this, and I was like, I think I need to, or I want to work for a startup. And he said, honestly, don't, don't do that. Think about working for the family business. We have customers, we have a product, we have sales. What we're really struggling with is how do we do more? How do we grow that better and faster and um, more efficiently? And I realized that was exactly what problem I wanted to solve. I wasn't necessarily the traditional entrepreneur in the sense that I wanted to develop the new idea, but I wanted to be the person to figure out how to grow it better and in a more sustainable um sustainable and thoughtful way. So the family business really provided me with a great opportunity to do that. Jamie, did you view it as a as a positive or a negative that it was you you were doing so on behalf of a business that was your family business versus another small or mid-sized company that was outside of, you know, family ownership and control? Yeah. I think I I looked at it really positively. One, I mean, it is really a treat to get to see my dad every day and to see him from a different perspective. You know, of course, you know your parents as your parents, but to see them as thoughtful, inquisitive decision makers and, and people who are really inspiring and as a leader, that was actually really nice. And then also personally, I just felt this additional level of obviously ownership and also responsibility that I don't think I would have gotten at another organization. Jimmy, can you tell us a little bit about the shift? So you're you've got a sterling resume from Goldman to to Google to venture capital investing. What did it what what was it like in the early days joining the family business for the first time? My guess is that the environment, the culture was a whole lot different than what you had experienced earlier in your career. Tell us a little bit about that shift. Yeah, to say the least, it was quite different. I mean, when I walked into the office, I didn't have a desk. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a manager to report to. I was just kind of told, make it better. And, you know, I didn't know what that even meant. So I think definitely from a cultural perspective, it was quite different. But also from just an um, how other pers- people perceived me and my work was quite different. You know, I would tell people, oh, I work for the family business. And it immediately comes with this idea of nepotism that, oh, well, you work for your family business because you couldn't get another job or you work for your family business because like that was your, your duty or your obligation. And it wasn't this, oh, you work for your family business because you think it's an amazing, great opportunity that, that has a lot of potential. Um, everyone kind of thinks, or maybe I, I perceived it as that a lot of people were thinking of it as as a default or a fallback instead of a conscious decision to do. So that, that I think was tough. And then one more thing I would say is there was no brand recognition. I think this is something that happens a lot with companies that in ETA is you're purchasing these, these businesses and you're choosing to be a part of them and you tell someone about it and their eyes immediately glaze over. They're like, what? Manufacturing in Timbuktu? Like, that's just not... <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was a change coming from, you know, you say Google and people, their eyes light up. You know, you say like Chem Impex and they look for the exit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What, James, is so interesting. What was the reaction of the non-family member employees of the organization when Jamie Shaw, this super talented, you know, highly educated and experienced person comes into the organization what, what was the reaction from some of the folks that saw that? Was it yeah. one of them being threatened or excited? I can imagine a scenario yeah. where there's a whole bunch of different emotions. Well, I would say there's two subsets of employees at our organization. One, you know, we have a, a large warehouse and these are folks who don't necessarily have college degrees, don't necessarily speak English. Yes, they know what Google is because they've searched for things on the internet, but they don't necessarily know what the University of Chicago is, Goldman, like none of those things have any meaning to them. So in some sense, you know, I came, I came to the table, you know, as a blank slate and it was really my work that was proving things to them. On the other hand, there are people who have been at the business who are quite educated um, and have been at the business for a very long time who had seen me kind of coming to the business when I was seven years old, eight years old. And like, you know, taking photocopies of, you know, garbage and like, you know, you know, just messing around in the office. So I think those people had probably a little bit of a harder pill to swallow in the sense that they had to now view me not as a child who is running around the office, but as a partner and as a collaborator. And for the most part, I think that I was successful by doing that in in my work product. But there was definitely, um, there have definitely been, been times where you have to really prove that, hey, I didn't just get here because I have the same last name as CEO. Um, any, any, Jimmy, that's such a good point. So any tips or tactics or advice that you would share with our listeners around doing that, around building the credibility, building the trust that needed to exist? I would imagine it, it exists, you know, in your situation, as does it for a, a, a searcher who might be out there trying to find a business that, you know, perhaps has family members in it, but their last name uh, very likely won't be the same right, last right. name as that of the, the, the owners and current operators of the business. Any advice on that front for both the, yeah. the family situation or, or really the non-family situation? Absolutely. I think, well, one, everybody has their own personal motivations, wherever you are in the business, whether you are a warehouse employee or you're, you know, a top salesperson, you as a person want to achieve things. And I thought it was my role as a leader in the organization to really understand, you know, what is it that each person in the organization is currently doing? What is most important to them? What do they want to stop doing? Um, what do they want to change doing? And what could I do to help facilitate that? So they didn't necessarily feel like, oh, this person's coming in to, to change the company or make things different or to take my job. It was more, this person's here to make my life easier. Like this person's here because they want to support me. So I think that that made it so it was less of a combative situation and much more of a collaborative situation. And I think choosing some small, easy wins can be really impactful. I mean, for our office, you know, it hadn't been updated in a very long time. There was a fair amount of just housekeeping that needed to be done. Like there were just piles of paper almost stacked to the ceiling when I walked in that just needed to be thrown away and a fresh coat of paint and just kind of 
better lighting in our warehouse. And that made a world of difference where people felt like, oh, this person is doing a bunch of things that that do really impact me, maybe not necessarily from a tactical perspective, but from an emotional perspective. Mm, I love I love that creating um, some quick wins and building rapport uh, through making improvements that are going to improve the daily lives and working experience of of your colleagues. I think that's uh, such a great piece of advice. You know, sort of related. You know, you're you're in it. You're obviously in the business. My guess is that you get approached from time to time by people that are either, you know, financial buyers or strategic buyers mm-hmm. or people that might fit into this ETA sort of separate profile of buyers. What, what should searchers, you know, let's make it about mm-hmm. you know, the, our, our podcast and the listeners here, yeah. but what should searchers keep in mind as they approach a family owned business? I mean, is yeah. it, 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 it's, there's so many of these companies throughout the United States or, and, and globally that are owned and operated by families and have many family members uh, working within them. What are some of the things that searchers need to keep in mind? I would say first and foremost that a family business is not a business like any other business where someone is necessarily just trying to make a profit and move on with their life. It's so much of it is in the identity of, of the person who started the business or even the family members who are running the business. This is, this is their legacy. This is their, their life's work. And I think you have to treat it with this level of, of care. And, and, and when you come to the table and you talk about investing in the business or being a partner to the business, you know, to the business, I think you need to treat it as if you were trying, you're going to marry one of their, the, the founder's children. You know, it, it is, it is something that is just so close to them, um, that it's so difficult for them to separate themselves from the business. So I would suggest probably, you know, coming to the table, yes, with ideas to help, you know, help this company make their dreams come true, you know, whatever it is, whether it's liquidity or, or helping them come up with different manufacturing processes or operational processes. But at the same time, I think you have to come at it where you're almost, um, it has to come from them. It has to come from the founder. So you can't say, well, you're doing this, this, and this wrong. You really have to stroke this person's ego in my perspective, because there is a lot of ego and identity intertwined with all of the family business businesses that I've seen. Sure. I can imagine a scenario where to a searcher, it might appear that people are in positions because of, you know, as you put it, their last name, mm-hmm. as opposed to being the best available um, person for the job. Right. How would you react to that notion and how would you advise searchers one when approaching business owners about the potential sale of their their life's work their baby but then maybe even also post investment let's just say they right. were to get a business owner to the closing table end up buying that business and transitioning into it what words of advice would you give that searcher during the search phase and then also as they turn into the new leader of the organization over a transition period around the sensitivities associated with people that might be in certain seats for reasons that um, totally obvious to the searcher? Right. I think that is one of the things that plagues family business the most is that you don't have, I think it's difficult to have the same access to talent as you would. And maybe this is the case in all small businesses, but I feel it's particularly 
plaguing family businesses that you may not have talent, access to talent. And because of that, you you work with what you have and often what you have is family members and they might not be the best suited. So my advice that I would give to someone who were to take over a business or, you know, invest in a business um, that has a situation like this is to really understand, you know, what are the rules that, and maybe this is the case for all businesses, right? Whether they're family owned or not, but what are the rules that require a different leader in those spaces? Can that person be utilized in a different way? Are they personally feeling fulfilled? And what are the rules that the family may have around replacing those people or moving them around and being upfront about those at, you know, prior to the close of the sale? Um, Because there are sometimes requirements that, you know, this, my, all of my children need to have a, a role in the, in the business, whether they like it or not, or whether you like it or not. And that might not actually be feasible for the business. So those are things that I think are definitely worth talking about and being upfront about prior to, to close. And, and instead of trying to shy away from them, I, I think you do have to handle the topic delicately, but it, I think it's worth being direct about. You know, I think the clearer you can be, the kinder it will come off to, to all parties involved. And Jamie, so on that same topic, are, are there rules around how that works within the family, right? Your, your family's business, you've not taken on outside capital. You, you've not sold the business. And what rules, parameters, infrastructure around decision-making and the types of things that you just mentioned exist? I think every family business has its own code of conduct, some that is written, some that isn't written. I mean, in our family business, you know, we have a rule that no in-laws can be part of the business. It's not written anywhere, but it's 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 unspoken, but it's understood. Whereas other family businesses, they have rules where um, you're in-laws are in, are just as equal as children. And, and and I think what can really separate a successful business, and this is something that our family is, is struggling with right now, is putting in good governance and actually institutionalizing what those parameters are that the, the founders feel like they need to have in place to, to feel comfortable with whatever idea they have of their business or whatever legacy they want to pass on as well as for the other people who are part of the business that are joining the business. And and I include in that group the people who are non-family members who are in the business who want to still feel heard and seen whether or not they have the same last name. So I think setting up good governance and creating a framework and actually codifying a lot of these things that may be unspoken but understood can really separate a successful family business from an unsuccessful family business because now all those things are in paper and they can be either negotiated or they can be set in stone versus thinking it's just this weird gray area. Jamie, that's that's such great uh, insight. And what, you know, it's, it's related, but you can envision a scenario whereby a, a, a searcher acquires a business that we put into this category of, of family business and they try to come in and institutionalize some of the mm-hmm. way these things get done. And, and you put in, you know, what you believe to be good hygiene in the form of, of governance and, and a board that's going mm-hmm. to be uh, strategically important to the future of the business. And, and that may come as a little bit of a 
culture shock or just a totally different way of doing things than they've been done in the past. Talk about that dynamic and how a searcher or an ETA professional might minimize the likelihood that that really sort of blows up in his or her face. I think it's a a huge challenge and one that we even struggle with in our family business now because some part of having a family business or being a small business is that it's closely held and that you control it and that you don't have to report anything to anybody if you don't want to. Especially our business, you know, we don't have any outside even debt. So we don't even have to report anything to our bankers. And I think when you come in and you say, hey, I think we need a board of advisors or hey, I think we need more oversight. I think it would be healthier for the business. It can be taken the wrong way. It can be taken as, well, I already know everything. So why do I need anybody else's advice? And I think when what we learned was instead of saying you're doing something wrong or this could be better, it's more you know, think about this as getting, you know, you pay for consulting advice, you know, think of this as getting good consultants on your side, feeling like you're not doing this alone, feeling like you are being supported as as the owner or owners or business leader, instead of kind of, you need to be coached and this needs to be changed. Again, I feel like a lot of it comes back to just the ego. And, and, and I think this is true in a lot of family businesses and not necessarily, um, just ours and, and those that I've read about and spoke to, that there is often a matriarch or a patriarch who who has this idea or this legacy in mind and and it is very difficult to, to get them to change without them thinking it's their idea first. And I think that goes I think that's true for all levels of of people at a family business or maybe even a small business is you need to get buy-in and the hardest way to get buy-in is saying you're doing this, this, and this wrong, and this needs to change. It really sure. needs to come from within. It has to, you have to make them think it's their idea. Yeah. Or at least a co-author of it. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So, so Jamie, we are just about up on time. I'm going to ask for uh, two more things before we let you get back about your day. Yeah. First, and they're both pieces of advice. The first one I would love for you to share a piece of advice for the family member that maybe finds themselves in your shoes where they're making a decision to join or in your case, maybe rejoin a family enterprise in effort to take it to the next level and enjoy in all of the benefits associated with creating value in a small business, including economic benefits. You know, what, what, what's your piece of advice for that person that finds themselves in the same position uh, that you were in years ago when you made the decision uh, to, to join your family's business? And then the second piece of advice, and we've spent some time on this already, um, but, but sort of some parting words of wisdom for that searcher that might be out there knocking on a lot of business owner doors and coming across inevitably business owners that do have a high degree of family involvement in their in their businesses. Maybe just two pieces of, of parting wisdom from you, Jamie, if you would. Yeah, those, those are two tough questions, but I will do my best to answer them. I guess my advice for the person who is considering to join the family business is one, to understand that you know, when you join the family business, you do really change the dynamics of the family, right? Like you are now not, you're taking a, on a totally different 
identity and set of responsibilities and a totally different role because you are not just the daughter or the son, but you are also the business partner in some sense. And I think understanding whether or not you're okay with that is important. You know, I know I've had, you know, family friends who are in family businesses who, who really said they didn't enjoy talking about family businesses or their family business at the Thanksgiving dinner table, or that they just wanted to call their mom because they wanted to call their mom. So I do think that that is a really important thing to consider is whether or not you're ready and willing and, and is it worth it to add that additional complication? But on the other side, I think that it is very rewarding and it is very meaningful to have another layer and depth to your relationship with your family members, sisters, cousins, parents, whoever it might be. That would be my advice to um, someone considering joining the family business. That's great. And then how about to the outsider? To the outsider, you have to almost think that you're marrying into this family. Like, are these people that you want to spend time with? Are they people that you want to, do you want them to be part of your family? I mean, there will be a lot of frustrations associated with maybe things that you may deem as unfair because some people are in the family and some people are not in the family. And those are things that you may be able to clean up over time. But is that a level of complication that you want to take on? And and is that something that you feel comfortable in navigating? And at the same time, with family businesses, there are a lot of really tremendous opportunities that you wouldn't get in a non-family owned and operated business, such as a very long-term view. Often, you know, their employees and also their customers are very loyal. You have this, you know, a, a different type of mentality that you're doing something beyond just for profit, but you're doing something for a family or, or a large, you know, a deeper institution. And I think that can be really meaningful. So again, I think that there are things that you need to weigh and I'm not sure, you know, depending on the person that could be a positive or a negative. I said it was going to be my last question, but I have a follow on, of course. <laughs> um, the to, to play on the marrying into the family analogy that you made what can the courtship process look like to minimize the likelihood that that marriage doesn't go, go the right direction? Right, uh, right. I think I mentioned this before, but clear is kind. You know, what are your expectations for the for the owners, for the non-family member employees, for the, you know, either there's the three circle model, which I think talks about who are all the different players in family businesses? There's the the owner, there's the family member who's not an owner, but is an operator. There's a family member who's not an operator, but is still, you know, part of the family. So may have some role in the family office or in the council or whatever it might be. I think you need to understand what are each of those people's um, needs and wants and desires. Map all of that out for yourself. See where you fit into all of that. And then also understand, based on that writing out, you know, very clearly what a framework would look like for a relationship with each of those individuals or each of those roles so that you can make sure you're on the same page and have the same expectations. I think that's such great advice, Jamie. Clarity and communication and hopefully getting out in front of any issues that may arise down the road. 
Well, Jamie, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners have been uh, extremely engaged and and have learned a tremendous amount from your wisdom and your sharing it with us so generously. So uh, on on behalf of the ETA podcast, on behalf of the Polsky Center at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, we thank you so much for sharing your time with us and, and for all of your learnings and wisdom and insights. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was so much fun being on and I can talk about this for days. So happy to to continue the conversation with anyone at any time. 